This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. For years, advocates have said that the best way to prevent drug overdose deaths is by opening supervised consumption sites. That's where people can use drugs under medical supervision. Sites like that allow for faster responses in order to reverse overdoses, and they increase opportunities for people to get addiction and recovery treatment. That strategy could be a game changer, especially as the highly potent opioid fentanyl continues to be the leading cause of overdose deaths in the country. This year in San Francisco, there have already been 131 accidental overdose deaths, according to the city's medical examiner. Last May, Chronicle journalists Heather Knight and Gabrielle Lurie toured a supervised consumption site in New York to talk to people who use drugs about how the sites are helping them. I use the site a lot, and it's cool. It's the best thing that could happen in New York, and I think uh, they should make many more sites like this. I like that, um, that they don't judge. You know, they make sure people get high safe. You know, they have the supplies all the time, not sometime, all the time. But supervised consumption sites are controversial. They're technically illegal under federal law, and critics say they enable addiction. Nevertheless, San Francisco leaders have been largely supportive of them. Last month, city leaders passed an exemption to a city law that would allow Mayor Lennon Breed and her staff to fundraise for the sites. But San Francisco has millions of dollars in its general fund earmarked to address the opioid crisis. So why private funding? Today on Fifth Emission, Chronicle columnist Nula Bashari explores that question. For years, the city has let state and national leaders debate supervised consumption sites, but now San Francisco has the opportunity and the money to take matters into its own hands. Nula will explain the local opportunity and why she thinks it's time for the city to make some bold moves. Nula Bashari, thanks for being on Fifth Emission. Thank you for having me. Nula, California has failed to pass legislation that would allow for supervised consumption sites to open in the state. Where does that leave local jurisdictions like San Francisco? What's needed to operate them here locally? Well, it leaves us in a really tricky situation. The legislation in California wouldn't have had an impact on their legality nationally, but it would have signaled that California is united and on board. And we're a pretty powerful and wealthy state. So if the Department of Justice came after us for running a supervised consumption site, having California have our back would be really, really helpful. But despite not having the state support, the city of San Francisco is down to move forward anyway. Both Mayor London Breed and city attorney David Chu have voiced their support for opening supervised consumption sites in the city, but would do a different model. So nonprofits would run and operate them without using any city funding. Hmm. So seems like having funding to do this is really key here. And as you point out in your recent column, it appears that there may be enough in the city's general fund to do it. Where's the money coming from? We have a lot of money coming in. About $130 million in settlements with different big pharma companies is coming in as a result of a ton of opioid settlement lawsuits that 
wrapped up last year. So those are coming in from Walgreens, from CVS, from Walmart, from Purdue. There's just a ton of money coming. And so all of that funding is going to land in the city's general fund, but it's going to be earmarked with something kind of vague, like must be used for opioid abatement resources or something. And so it's really up to the city and the legislators to decide where that money should go. Our colleague Mallory Mensch wrote about those settlements in The Chronicle this week. That story's on sfchronicle.com and The Chronicle app. So, Nula, are other cities getting money from these settlements too? $130 million for San Francisco is a lot. A lot of money. We can do a lot with that. So we could do things like purchasing Narcan, which is an overdose reversal drug. We could train and hire more people to work at addiction treatment centers, or we could fund a supervised consumption site. All of these settlements that are wrapping up are resulting in tons and tons of money landing in the coffers of all of these cities across the country. And so everyone is kind of trying to figure out what to do with them. So in Rhode Island, for example, they are using a lot of this funding to support these supervised consumption sites, which should be opening up later this year. So it seems like, Nula, there's an opportunity here to do something. There's money to do it. But at the same time, as you note in your story, nonprofits that you spoke to in your reporting have been, quote, unable and unwilling to move forward. What's happening? Well, first, I would say that there are many nonprofit organizations in San Francisco that are really chomping at the bit to get these sites open. They've been advocating for it for years. The AIDS Foundation, HealthRight360, and the Gubbio Project all see firsthand the impact of our overdose crisis and have been really pushing for these sites because they know that they save lives. So they're fully on board. The problems that they're facing in opening them, though, are really myriad. So the Gubbio Project is a really small organization. They only have a budget of about $500,000 a year. So they don't feel like they can take on this massive venture with their limited budget. HealthRight360 is a larger healthcare organization, and they're really down to open, but are reluctant to rely on private funds to do so, which is what the city is basically asking them to do. Um, so they have been looking around for some donors, but because of the legal ambiguity over whether these sites are allowed to open, you can imagine that if you're a philanthropist, it would be pretty risky to donate money to open one of these. So they're struggling with that. The AIDS Foundation's board is understandably reluctant to take on such an endeavor because it could risk their other programming. And they do a lot of work with the community, whether it's in HIV and AIDS resources, ending hepatitis C, funding harm reduction programs. So they're concerned that if they open a supervised consumption site, that it would risk the other projects that they have going on. So there are risks involved here. But as you also note in your story, Supervisor Hillary Ronan points to a gatekeeper that may be limiting the ability of these nonprofits to do something. Tell me more about that. So we have all of these opioid settlement funds coming in, and we have these nonprofits ready to go. But the city is saying, you know, everything is a little bit too legally risky at this moment. And so we're not going to allow these nonprofits to use any city money, including these settlement funds, to open their sites. And the person who is in charge of making that decision at the moment is city attorney David Chu. So any contract in San Francisco that has to be signed goes across his desk. And so these nonprofits already know that if they were to draft this contract with the Board of Supervisors' approval, that he wouldn't sign off on it. And it's it's kind of an interesting position for him to be in because 
he was an assembly member before he became city attorney, and he's been a really staunch advocate of these sites. He helped push through the bill at the assembly level. He's been you know, really vocal about wanting to support them. But now he's in this role of having to protect the city of San Francisco from any legal risk. And so he's saying, no, we must move forward with these, but we can't use city funds. What kind of risks does San Francisco face by opening supervised consumption sites without state or federal support? Nula will explain after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. If you have a comment or there's a story you think we should cover, let us know. You can email us at fifth, that's F-I-F-T-H, at sfchronicle.com, or leave us a voicemail at 415-777-6156. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Nula Bashari, before the break, you explained how San Francisco City Attorney David Chu has advocated for supervised consumption sites, but he doesn't want to dip into city funds to open them. What kind of risks is he trying to protect San Francisco from? Well, it's not totally clear, which I think is part of the problem. You know, this is a really unprecedented situation. We don't know how the Department of Justice will respond. The Biden administration has been really quiet on this, despite numerous requests for guidance. But we can theorize on the absolute worst case scenario, which would be if we get a Republican administration in 2024 that is adamantly opposed to running these sites, we could be issued a cease and desist order, so we'd have to shut down. But it could get worse than that. Due to the statute of limitations, doctors and staff at the centers could lose their licenses and may even face jail time. So operating them could also put our federal dollars at risk in other areas of our city. So depending on how far down the rabbit hole you go, it could be a pretty risky endeavor. So City Attorney David Chu is in this pretty interesting position. What have other people said about the the place he's in right now? I think that, you know, he is in a really difficult scenario and there are many interpretations of what his motivations are and what he should be doing. I did talk to California State Senator Scott Weiner, who authored the state bills to push these sites forward, the ones that were vetoed by the governor. And he really sympathized with Chu. He said he's in a really difficult position. Chu has been a really strong supporter of these sites, as I mentioned, but his job in this role is to protect San Francisco to the best of his ability from a legal perspective. But you also talked to some legal experts, Nula, who pushed back, and they have a different perspective on the risk that San Francisco faces. What did they share with you? So the only federal case that we have to look at in regards to the legality of these sites is United States versus Safe House, which is taking place in Philadelphia, where a nonprofit there has been trying to open the sites. The San Francisco Public Defender's Office caught wind of Chu's interpretation of the case, and they allege that it is incorrect, that the risk is not huge for San Francisco. They say that that ruling doesn't have any impact on San Francisco, and they correctly point out that San Francisco did operate a supervised consumption site at the Tenderloin Center mm -hmm. for more than a year without facing any consequences from the Department of Justice. Mm. 
Now, we've talked about this on Fifth Emission before. New York has been able to open centers. Could San Francisco learn anything from their model and how they've been able to fund these sites? Oh, absolutely. I think New York has really led the way with these sites. They've created a really successful model. The organization On Point that runs the two sites in New York has really built an incredible allyship among the neighbors in the communities where those sites are run with local government and even with the police. The police are on board with it. And so I think that's a lesson that San Francisco could really draw something from. We're a very divided city all the time. It seems like we're only getting more divided. And I think that the unity that New York has um, shown is a really successful way to look at these sites. Mm. But it's also showing us the kind of downfalls of their model as well. So they are relying on private funding as well. And while it frees the city from any potential legal liability, it's really stressful and unreliable for nonprofits to depend on private funds. So despite how successful On Point has proven to be, you know, people who work there have saved hundreds and hundreds of lives, they're really struggling to maintain a consistent source of funding and are now saying, unless we get money from the city, we're going to have to shut down. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of sentiment, the fact that San Francisco is going to have all this money in its general fund. People like Supervisor Hillary Ronan says she thinks Chu is overstepping, that the decision-making here, whether or not to open the sites, should be left to policymakers, not a city attorney. What do you think? That's a really complicated, nuanced argument, and I haven't been able to analyze it from a reporter standpoint yet. I don't know exactly what the city charter says about what the role of the city attorney is in regards to advising legislators on civil risk versus criminal risk and how much power they should have. But I do think she has something of a point. You know, she claims that Chu's role is to advise on legal risk and then let policymakers decide whether or not to assume that risk. He used to be a policymaker, but in this role, he should not be. So mm -hmm. by withholding these funds, though, that is actually what's happening. And Nuli, you spoke to David Chu about these concerns. What did he share with you? He says that he really does believe that there is a path forward to opening these supervised consumption spaces in San Francisco that doesn't unnecessarily increase the risk on behalf of the city. The nonprofits at the moment are saying, no, there isn't a way forward. And so they're kind of in a little bit of a standoff, but I'm really hoping that there is some compromise that comes out in the next few weeks. Now, you urge in your column that opening the sites right now is really important. Tell me more about that. Well, overdoses in San Francisco are absolutely skyrocketing. It's so easy to look at this issue as a political one or a legal one, but it's really at its core a life or death situation. In the months that the supervised consumption site at the Tenderloin Center was open, overdoses really dropped. That was a hugely successful model. And now that it's closed, we're seeing the highest rate of deaths in three years. I unfortunately know two people who died just a few days ago of an overdose. These are human beings. They're people's sons and daughters and friends and family. Their lives matter and their deaths are preventable. And the legal conversations are really complicated, but the reality is clear. The longer we wait to open these sites, the more people will die. And in my opinion, saving their lives is really worth that risk. Mm. Nuli, your voice is so important here. Your perspective is on an issue that is hotly debated in the city. Thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you for having me. Nula Bashari is a columnist and editorial writer at The Chronicle. 
Find her piece about supervised consumption sites online at sfchronicle.com. You'll also find a story by Chronicle reporter Mallory Mensch about the debate over San Francisco funds. The Chronicle tracks accidental overdose deaths in San Francisco. You can check it out at sfchronicle.com slash overdose. Thanks to King Kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening.